0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Mike, and it is just awesome to be with you. Oh, here, take this. And we uh, will read our passage starting in verse 1. So John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're in the second week of a series called Encountering Jesus, where we're just looking through the Gospel of John at different people's encounter with Jesus. What did they gain from knowing and seeing Jesus, and what did they learn, and, and what can we know today from their experience and their encounter with our Lord and Savior. Um, so because we're going through, the, it's all in the Gospel of John, and it's just different people. And I'm struck with the different types of people Jesus interacted with and the different things that we can gain. Today's passage, we can't talk about all of it because it would be like drinking from a from a fire hose. Like Jesus packs so much into this interaction, and even the few verses following, that um, we can't talk about all of it. You will most likely have some questions at the end of this sermon about what did this really mean? And what is this message and metaphor? So we're going to really zero in on one part of this, which is the new birth, what it's like to have new birth if you encounter Jesus and what Jesus means by this powerful central metaphor from our passage today. So John chapter three, starting in verse one. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me say, at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So here we're talking about the new birth we're going to see three things about the new birth and this metaphor of jesus saying you must be born again and then nicodemus asking uh what do you mean (laughs) that's not only a challenging metaphor a difficult metaphor to grasp and a gross metaphor and nicodemus is, is trying to reconcile what he knows about god's stuff and about real life and about jesus what do we know from this main metaphor about the new birth and jesus's command for us to be born again we're going to see three things who it's for like what kind of people are called to be born again, where it's from, and, and Jesus' um, words about the kingdom of God, and then thirdly, what it is, and then to close, how we can get the new birth in our life. Um, when I think of a born-again Christian, I think of two categories of people. I don't know if this is a term that you've heard before, but born-again Christians in my mind are people who want a very religious, rigid strict hardcore form of christianity born again christians when i think of, of the way that term is used in our world today they want to be the navy seals of christianity i also think of people who had a really rough past and then like made a really big turnaround from drug use and 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 you know violence and abusive behavior prison and then they they made some big decision from a very dark past to a new life in Jesus, and people who really need Jesus, like everyone agrees, people who need Jesus, those people are born-again Christians. Super religious, dogmatic people, and then people who are really messed up and and need that. And I think of two different people, um, because I wasn't raised a Christian, and when I started going to church, I was a very skeptical, sort of in my late teenage years, and um, I was a new Christian, just starting to go to youth group and hang out with Christian people for the first time. And I remember meeting in some sports thing, I was playing some sort of sport, I guess it was soccer. And I met a Christian person who was a real dogmatic, hardcore, strict, Christian kind of person. And he walked up to me uh, as just a random teenager and said, are you born again? And I said, well, I just started going to church and I, um, and I, I said, I have recently, accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Is that what you mean by born again? And he says, yeah, 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 you're, okay, you're, you're a Christian, but are, you, but are you born again? And what he meant to say was, are you the really hardcore Navy SEALs type of Christian that's really Christian, a.k.a. born again? And I remember looking from behind this guy and seeing that like his six kids that he had behind him were all clearly wearing clothes that had been handmade at home. And, and I know that kind of crowd of people, like it was in rural central California where I lived at the time, and I'm going, this dude lives on a, on a commune. You know what I mean? And he has this real particular brand of Christianity where you make your clothes and you don't buy them from Walmart. And, uh, and that's born again in the, in the cultural mindset of our day. I also think of when I was a new Christian and I went to youth group, and one of the youth leaders at youth group in this small town, his name was Deke. And Deke was like, Can you say redneck? Is redneck okay? He was a redneck, like literally and figuratively. And he was a born-again Christian. He was a very evangelistic guy. If anyone came to youth group, like I was, new, punk, disrespectful kid, and he would say, are you born again? Are you a Christian? What's your thing? And I remember somebody at some point invited me to a haunted house that was at a church. And if you're of a certain era, you know that there was like a time where people did haunted houses in Halloween at church. And then the thermostat got cranked up on the haunted house. And it wasn't a haunted house. It was a hell house. And it was that you walked through it. And the first part was someone shooting up drugs. And the second part was someone gambling. And the next person, someone's like, ah, I play guitar and I drink Jack Daniels. And then the next one was all of them going to hell. And then, because the thermostat, you know, and then it all smelled in hell. And I remember walking through it and being like, this is dark. Like, I didn't come to church for this kind of stuff. And then at the end of it is Deke. And Deke's standing there going, are you a Christian? Yes. Okay, next. Are you a Christian? If you died today, you know, where would you go? And that's what I think of when I think of born-again Christian, which is like a very particular kind of like... My agenda is not for justice in the city. My agenda is not for a holistic plan for flourishing with every person who knows Jesus. My thing is I want to make sure that you can answer that question if you died today, that you would know where you go, not back into the hell house, but into the kingdom. Of course, the last scene of the hell house, by the way, was this beautiful image of Jesus and, um, and you know, heaven. Well, It's easy to scoff at different tactics, and I was invited into this is how I know like God saves you and it's not, it's not just your uh, works, it is like God brought, showed me his grace even in the midst of like kind of crazy early experiences from going to church and not having a background. This intro is taking way too long. What I'm trying to explain to you is there's like a born-again ideology about what it looks like to be a Christian. And in the mindset of our culture, the concept of being a born-again person is debased. And those kinds of people are trying to be hardcore about Jesus, but it's causing them to be pushy, not um, emotionally intelligent. And so our culture doesn't like those kinds of people. Or they're saying, if you had a background like Deke, and if I told you all the stories from Deke's background, it would be too long to count, but he had a history with all sorts of dark stuff and was saved out of it. And and our culture just sees those people as those are people who are Christians. But if you're high-functioning, if you're open-minded, if you're a a thoughtful person who's on the right side of history with most of your behavior and opinions, then you don't need Jesus. Or our culture would typically say, if you're a Christian and you're a thoughtful, good kind of Christian, then you have to be therefore a very moderate Christian. Like you're not too into Jesus that it would cause you to be bigoted. You're like an okay Christian. And yet Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus in John 3 flies in the face of all of that stuff, and we really need to dig into what does it look like for us to be following the real Jesus as he reveals himself to this person in John chapter 3, the new birth, who it's for. If you look in verse 1 of our passage, you will see Nicodemus is not deek. Nicodemus is not a weird individual. He is a part of the mainstream cultural institutions of the day. And he has a lot of other traits that I think you and I would love. Verse 1, Nicodemus was a Pharisee who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. What does that mean? He's educated. He's savvy. He's made his way into leadership. What else do we know about the person? Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night. That's actually easy to skip over, but, but Nicodemus is coming to ask questions of this person, Jesus, And in the beginning of the Gospels, we're always trying to figure out, like, who is this Jesus person and what did he come to do? And Nicodemus is trying to figure out those same things, and he goes at night. Going at night would—some commentators are saying maybe Nicodemus is just trying to rid himself of the shame associated with seeing Jesus. But other commentators that are sort of in the majority said the the Gospel writer is trying to depict to us, the readers, that Nicodemus is going at the time where the ruling class— would go to negotiate, that they would go at night to make a backroom deal to say, many of us have heard of you, Jesus, us in the ruling class, the educated elite, the movers and shakers of our society, the open-minded, the thoughtful, the intelligent. We have heard some things about you, and now I'd like to meet with you at night so we can make an arrangement, make, a, make sure we have a thoughtful discussion with not a bunch of people around so we can understand who you are. So he's, he's trying to spend a kind of quality time where important people discuss things with Jesus. And then, in verse 2, we can't pass up the fact that Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi. So he's part of the Jewish ruling elite, where that term doesn't get thrown around to everyone. And then he bestows that kind of honor and open-mindedness to this person. Well, that means that Nicodemus is he's a political person. He's an investigatory person, he's a relational person, but he's also a very open-minded and respectful person as well. I think you and I, though we can think of Pharisees as a particular kind of person when you read through the Gospels, I think we would like Nicodemus as a skeptic who's investigating the claims of Jesus. What that means is Nicodemus doesn't fit into the mold of the way typical people say one must be born again because he's got his act together. He's open-minded, he's thoughtful, and respectful. He's not an uptight bigot. He would be happy to buy his clothes at Walmart, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, he's a part of the mainstream in our society. And yet Jesus says, you must be born again. Um, On the topic of Christians not fitting into the stereotypes of our time, I'm reminded of Rebecca McLaughlin who is, uh, she wrote a book called Confronting Christianity and I really like Rebecca McLaughlin. If you have questions about your faith, um, she wrote a book that, or that book, every t- uh, title of the chapters is just a very serious skeptical question that people ask about Christianity, about homosexuality and gender and slavery and science. But she, um, pardon me, she was the... Um, She was the vice president or a vice president in the Veritas Forum. She went to Cambridge. She's a British person and a very posh, elegant, intellectual kind of person. And side note, uh, my son, who's two years old, was playing with one of her books, and I took a picture and tagged her on Instagram, and then she commented. And I was like, yeah, that was cool. (laughs) Thank you, Rebecca McLaughlin. So, um, yeah, anyway, so... uh, she she was in the veritas forum the veritas forum is an organization that sets out to start dialogues at colleges secular colleges between um christians and non-christians and so she was the, the head of content for this really cool organization that you could even follow online and see some of those debates and some of those speakers it's very cool so she's a very like highbrow cambridge intellectual who wrote this book where people are asking questions about Christianity. And on the chapter, my favorite chapter in the book is the one about science, because she worked with all these scientists um, in colleges. And she's, you know, the, the heading of the chapter is Hasn't Science Disproven Christianity or the Claims of Jesus? And most of the chapter is just her saying Here's a scientific finding that at one point in time people thought disproved Christianity. And here's a Christian scientist who's also at the most elite levels of education who has said, here's our findings and how the Christian worldview fits into your skepticism. And the whole chapter is just, well, interesting question. This MIT professor is a born-again, Bible-believing, church-going Christian. Here's what he or she says. Here's an Oxford person. Here's a Harvard person. And it's just a whole chapter of those elite people, respected in all areas of academia, saying, I love Jesus. I have surrendered my life to Jesus. I have new life in Jesus. All those normal things that you say as a born-again believer. And it reminds me that anytime we put a category on the kind of people that can be a Christian, God has a way of disrupting those categories. Like we might think those people are too messed up or those people are too skeptical or they have too much questions or too much baggage and frustration with the church. And yet God's grace just keeps going out. God's spirit blows like a wind you don't know where it's where it went you don't know where it's going and yet you can discern its movement and know that it's here when you sense it and feel it and so jesus uses that same metaphor and we can see god's spirit goes out to all different people and jesus um, is talking to a very highbrow person and he's saying you have to drastically ditch everything and have think of your faith following me as a new birth which is a drastic metaphor. So it's for every kind of person. Secondly, where it's from. We know something about where the new birth and new life in Jesus is from, and it's sort of a rare occurrence in the Gospel of John where John mentions the kingdom of God. Other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they talk about the kingdom of God all the time. Jesus in those historic accounts talks about the kingdom. There's only a, very f- a few instances in John, and so they're emphatic. They're meant to be emphatic here. So let's look in the two places here where Jesus does talk about the kingdom of God. In verse 5, Jesus answers after the question, how do I be born again? He says, very truly I tell you No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. And if you looked through your Old Testament, you would see that water and spirit are sort of linked in how God works, and that the Bible is primarily set in the desert climate of the ancient Near East. And so water slash spirit is this symbol and a message about God's life-giving power. So the presence of the spirit brings life. I'm thinking of the times when you, um, let's say for instance, it was like some absurd temperature like 105 last Sunday, uh, and, and cloudy, where you're like, I do not pay the amount of rent I pay to experience 105 degrees, you know, like that was me being an upset Orange County person, I'm like, okay, I didn't sign on for this, cloudy and 105, so it's in those instances where you're like, oh, I could die if I don't get inside. Um, that when you drink a large cup of water, there's like a sweetness to it. There's also something that's firing off in your brain when you drink water after you're very thirsty, that your body's going like, okay, we're not gonna die right now, you know? And, and it's, there's a sweetness to water, and you can feel it going all the way into your whole being, you know? And then like your veins are different when you're hydrated as opposed to when you're dehydrated. Like it makes its way into every part of your life. Your brain is going like, oh, we're gonna be okay. It affects your whole thing, your whole being comes in you and it brings life. And that's part of the metaphor that the Bible brings us about God's spirit and where God's spirit how God's spirit works. So, this kind of life-giving spirit is from is found in the kingdom of God. So we know that. And let's just pause and do some sort of application here. What that means is being born again also doesn't mean just turning another leaf. Or starting to make some better choices. I think some of us think of becoming a Christian as I wasn't making good choices, and now I'm just gonna start on a process of trying to be better. But that betrays the drastic nature of the metaphor of being born again and new life. That primarily, knowing Jesus and being saved in Jesus and being a Christian as opposed to a non Christian is not just a matter of degree. I made bad choices, and one percent good choices. I'm gonna try and get that up to five percent or twenty percent. It's not just a matter of degree or scale. It's a matter of nature. It's a you. You become a a totally different person when you're born again, and the Spirit is in you, and that life is brought to you. So it's not just a matter of becoming a Christian and turning a new leaf. Um, or some of some of us think of Christianity in moral terms, and so we think, oh, I need to make better choices, and that's what it means to be a Christian. Some of us also. Think of it in terms of just spiritual peace and a spiritual feeling. Like some of us come to Jesus and we, we need some existential spiritual help from God. And we're saying, I'm miserable. I don't feel like I have meaning. I don't have satisfaction in life. And I hope that I can get some of that And so one person is saying, I want to make my percentage of good behavior increase. Another person is saying, I want to just be happier and increase in that nature. And maybe I can get that from 5% to 20%, just be sort of a happier person. And whereas God meets us in both of those places and draws us to himself, he does not bring us into the kingdom because of those incremental improvements, either in how we feel or how we act. Because that betrays the message of being born again. Because that message would say, try better. If you try better, to the extent that you perform better, then God's peace will be inside of you. Or to the extent that you're really an open person and you really like sing passionately or pray passionately or act like a really devoted Christian, then you'll start to feel some peace in your life. Like those are just matters of degree. But Jesus is saying, you need to think of encountering me as a complete like death and rebirth. A resurrection, you might say. A total Um, abandonment of the old life. And so to paraphrase some of this, I guess I would say if Jesus were meeting us in this place, he would say, you need so much more than just a little bit of a better feeling. You need all of me. You need to die to your old self. You need to be raised. You need to be reborn. You need so much more than just feeling happier in a higher percentage of your life. And to this kind of person, more of the moral person, he would say, your sin goes so much deeper. Even the stuff that you call sin in your own life has like sin underneath it. And so you think you're trying to get from 5 to 20% and you're just like zero times 100 is still zero, (laughs) you know, like you're just, you're lower than you think. Both of those people need to just abandon their project of self-salvation and be born again. So what it is, it's, It's from this life-giving, spirit-indwelling kingdom. But there's also this really interesting thing about the Greek word palingenesia and how the original hearers would have understood the words that Jesus is saying here. Because there's a Greek audience and there's a Jewish audience to these words from Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you've got to be reborn. And the concept of rebirth was known to Jewish people to be yes. There will be a resurrection at the end of time, so they had an idea that, that God would fix the world in the future. They understood some of that. We, we Jesus affirms that, but they didn't think of it in in, in terms of God doing a work in you today. It's just a future resurrection, and then the Greek Stoic understanding of rebirth uh, and and how they use palingenesis is. It's not Buddhist, but it's Stoic, and it says that your life, the world, and even society sort of has this cycle where it's reborn, it's good for a while, it dies, and it needs to get redone. And so their view, the Stoic view of society and the future of humanity is that all of it gets born, succeeds for a while, gets destroyed, and then we will start again. And, and you might know this from, um, if, if you ever studied this stuff in college, but the Stoic idea is... The destruction of the world, death, and rebirth is something that you're supposed to sort of remove yourself from and not be so upset about. So their belief in their cyclicality of rebirth was don't attach yourself so much to death, don't get so excited about the good stuff, all of it's just going to happen over and over again. But neither of those are a Christian perspective. Um, The rebirth in the Stoic view is a little bit like the uh, show Battlestar Galactica, Battlestar Galactica is the coolest sci-fi TV show ever created. Um, it takes 10 years of your life to watch all the episodes because it's like, God help us, it's like they're all an hour long. There's like 50 seasons and there's three movies and um, there's even a sketch on that show uh, Portlandia where someone like sat down to watch the first episode and they went, this is so good. And then all of a sudden like they had like a beard that's down to here, whatever happened in the sketch. That's what happens on the show because it's a really good show and it and it's long, and it's all about the future. It's a futuristic sci-fi TV show where robots become autonomous, and then they take over the whole universe, and then the real people are trying to fight the robots. Here's what I bring, submit to you, and spoilers ahead. At the very end of this show where you're going like, I don't even remember what happened. I just need to finish it so I can say I watched all of it. At the very end of the episodes of the whole series in Battlestar Galactica, you find out that all the ships and all these different places in the universe have just been destroyed, and there's just a small contingent of human beings that crash land onto this planet with water and plants and animals and other primitive people, and then they have no evidence of their past life, and then you find out that the entire show was not the future, but was in fact the past, and that all the people who crash landed on earth now evolve and whatever into the the world that we have today. We are living Battlestar Galactica. That's the point, spoiler, uh, uh, on the whole show. You don't have to watch it now. I just saved you (laughs) 10 years of your life. So the stoic view of life was all of it just happens, and there's no point in saying your life has particular meaning. That you your dreams of a, a life that would matter and a, a significance of being known and seen and heard and loved and having your your um, your your personality your identity be something that's like eternally significant that's not a concept that the Stoics believed, and so Jesus has two two ways that Jesus uses in the New Testament the word palingenesia, and they're drastically different than the thoughts from the time. Matthew 19, Jesus says, refers to his future final palingenesia. He says in Matthew 19, truly I tell you, at the palingenesia, the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the throne. So he's saying, you are significant and you're going to have a rebirth and a powerful, eternal, cosmic kingship where you rule and reign in some way over the universe, sitting with the cosmic king, Jesus, with your identity and your sense of self, all your dreams fulfilled with him. That's the future of the people of God. So his view of palingenesis is you're with me. And because I reign, we reign and we'll be together. That's future rebirth. But then Paul in Titus 3 says that that palingenesia, that rebirth, is in you when you give your life to Jesus today. Titus 3.5 says that Jesus saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of re- and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So where does new birth come from? It comes, this might seem like a real sci-fi kind of thing to say, but it comes from the future. The real new birth, the water that brings life, the spirit that penetrates every part of your life when you become a Christian, it's been given to us. It comes from the future because it's Matthew 19's future palingenesia. That reign is the kingdom of God, and yet Titus 3.5 is saying that kingdom is inbreaking in us today as the Spirit moves in us, creates a people of God who are also filled with the Spirit. So that renewal is with us and in us and empowering us and changing us today. Let's, let's do a little bit more application before we sort of wrap up this sermon. Um, I don't live most of my life thinking about my cosmic worth to Jesus Christ. It oftentimes does not make its way into my level of joy. It doesn't make its way into my pa- like patience in face of um, frustrations in life. And yet, through God's mercy and his grace, Titus 3.5, I have access to a kind of worth and power and meaning that if I grab onto it, I think would continue to do something powerful in my life. And what I'm trying to say is there's like an it factor to the kind of joyful Christian that we can be. And it's not just being better. It's further holding onto this thing that is already true of us who have been shown God's grace and mercy. This, this future reign this future kingdom that is already in-breaking through the Spirit in our lives today. So where is the new birth from? It's from the future, but it's in-breaking in our lives today. That's how it works. And then lastly, what is it? It is an implantation. It is a a plant of growth in new life. But it also causes us to have a kind of new sight. Because if you look in our passage, you see in verse 3, Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God. So in verse 5, he's talking about entering the kingdom of God. And now verse 3, it says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What I'm trying to explain here, um, and I don't know if I'm doing it succinctly, is that there's a way for us to know about the kingdom of God, know about Jesus. But you'll know that it's really like believed in your heart when it affects The way that you see things like when it becomes a lens through which you see your life and a lens through which you see the trials of your life and the relationships of your life and everything and so i think the testimony of a lot of different people especially those who were raised in the church and maybe maybe your first interaction with christianity wasn't weird youth group stuff but was like your family is a christian and then you always went to church and you know some stuff like those types of people who were raised christian they know a lot of stuff about Jesus, but the testimony of every real person who's given their life to Jesus and is following him, who was raised in the church, sounds something like this. I knew the stuff, but then I could see what Jesus did for me. Then, then I could see who God really was. There's a moment where the Spirit indwells, there's a moment where you come to real faith, you come to real repentance, and it's not just about knowledge, but the gospel becomes real to you. And that's the testimony of a lot of different people who are Christian, but knew a lot of stuff about God. I remember being at a church that had a lot of really old people. I worked at First Baptist Church in Bakersfield. And a lot of the new uh, people that were coming to faith and baptized were like these older folks who had a very religious kind of background but then came to faith and said, oh, I knew it, but I didn't, I didn't see it. Or they would say, I went to church all the time. I, heard, I knew all kinds of stuff. I even was forced to memorize the Bible in different stages of life, but then I could see what he did for me. Then I could see my need for a Savior who would atone for my sins and make me right with God. There's a seeing that enters us into the kingdom of God, or, or you'll know you're in the kingdom of God when you start to see through that lens. As an example, there's also sort of a parallel of this. I'm sorry. There's an antithesis. There's an opposite of this, which is whenever you meet someone who says, I was raised Christian, people who are, whenever they say I was raised in the church. I yeah. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. So the, the, the nature of being born again is that it makes its way into like every part of your experience. And that's why Jesus can use drastic metaphors like being born again. He's trying to get at this idea that it's not just one of degree. It's one how you see everything now in your life through this thing that has been done for you in Jesus Christ. That's how we can see the kingdom of God and therefore need to see through the kingdom of God to be born again. Oh, what I was saying was, um, when you meet someone who says, I was raised Christian, but the, they say it with a certain tone, and what they mean is they're they're not Christians anymore, and the, bi- the biography of a person who was raised Christian but is not a Christian anymore, at some point realizes, like, someone tells them, oh, you can't just be religious, it's important that you live for something else. Like, I'm thinking of when you're young, the message to a young person who's religious is if you're a really good person, then you do good godly stuff. But then you get a little bit older and that kind of person is told, no, 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 it's not about being a good religious person. It's about who you love. Like the normal thing that goes on in your teenage years is it's not about being good, religious, and godly. You need to be your own person and start to define yourself on who pays attention to you, loves you. You know, you turn 15 years old, and you're like, I have curves now, (laughs) you know? Or like, I have muscles now, I have little biceps now, and like, I I can attract someone to love me, and at some point the message comes to you that you're not who, you, you shouldn't judge yourself based on obeying your parents, you should judge your worth based on who pays attention to you. That's a very normal teenage thing. And then you get a little bit older, and someone tells you, no, it's not just about needing someone else to love you, you need to be your own person in your young adult years and succeed and make your place in the world and succeed at college so that you can have a career and do something significant and meaningful. And that's how you should frame your life. That's how you should think of yourself as worthy. It's not about who loves you. It's about what debt you make in the world while you're here. And I've lived in a few different places where a lot of successful people live. Orange County's like that. Um, I lived on the Central Coast where a lot of the people who made their money in North Orange County, and they were like, I'm out, I succeeded, and they moved to Santa Barbara, where I used to live. And so those folks were all very successful. There was the winners. It attracts all the people who are like, we did it. We succeeded. We found the right people. We're savvy. We're educated. And, and their thing, though, as they get older, having seen a lot of those people get old with their money and their success, living on the same hill as Oprah and Ellen and whatever other people live in sort of the upscale areas on that part of the state, a lot of them are plagued with the fact that at some point, other successful people look at them and say, no, it's not about how successful you are. That's stupid. It's about giving back. It's about being a, a, a generous person. It's about creating a foundation that has your name on it and a building at a college. That's What makes you worthwhile? So even the most successful people who have reached the heights of attainment in those areas get together and go, no, shame on you. It's not about that. It's about leaving a lasting legacy. And then they obsess themselves with being socially helpful, volunteerism, and meaningful. But the thing that I've noticed about that is I love all of those things. I love being loved. I love trying to be successful. I love giving back the effort to save yourself and to bring yourself meaning from all those things is actually a a fruitless affair. Because some of those people who have given their things away to their last day still end up saying, I have an emptiness in me. I'm not fulfilled like I thought I was, or like I thought I would be. And so the new birth has to come to us so that we, and again, I'm mixing metaphors, but so is Jesus. We need the life. We need the water life. We need that water to come into our body, to fill every part of us like the Spirit does. We need a new kingdom to live in where we have significance and meaning. All of that stuff, if you're gonna package it together, is this metaphor of the new birth. Because it's not of degree, it's of drastic change. So I wanna close with this metaphor. I've read this quote before, but C.S. Lewis, um, like many things, has sort of encapsulated this message very clearly. And I'd like to read you this quote where C.S. Lewis uses the metaphor of a house. He says, imagine yourself a living house. God God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. This is exactly what the Spirit does. God lives in us. Until the time when we reign with him in his kingdom completely, where we have his presence in full. We think of ourselves as needing a spiritual bump, needing moral help, and Jesus is saying, you need to think of yourself as being born again to a completely new person. But the good news of God is that knowing him, having life in him, means that that's exactly what he does. Because... New birth is not something that you do. I was present. I have two kids. I was present at both births, and you know what I mean—real present. Physically, you're hurting my hand. You know, flop sweat. This is a crazy thing, especially the first kid. We are going like I'm doing all of this for the first time. This is nuts. You know. How crazy it is for those of you who have done it. And in each instance, my daughter Romy, my son Soren, they weren't particularly happy when they came out. It's a painful affair. And they looked hurt, and and, um, they weren't particularly enjoying themselves. And that's like the nature of new birth. It's, It's a drastic thing. You didn't expect it. It's not you in control, and yet what comes of it is new birth. So think of your Christian life as that. And pray your prayers through that lens of saying, Jesus, I cannot attain your acceptance. I cannot become the person that you want to be. I just need you to fill me with your spirit, and God, change me. Or I'm, I'm using this person and this person. The, the not moral person, but the person who's just in need of help saying, God, my sadness probably goes 10 layers deeper than I'm willing to admit. I need you to make me a totally different person. God, will you reshape my emotions? Will you reshape my motivations? Will you reshape the way I do conflict and the way I think of my very self? Rebirth me through your spirit so I can be a totally new person. The other thing that happens with birth is that the pain is taken on someone else. Like in the ancient world, this is a particularly apt metaphor because in the ancient world and in the non-modern world, um, moms bring new life into the world at the risk of their own life. So it's certainly through their pain, but a number of, a percentage of moms are basically saying, I'm going to have a child because I want you to have life so much. I want you to be brought into the world. I want you to have a new existence, even if it means I die. That's a very real sentiment for moms in the ancient world. And how much more true is that of Christ, that not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life, he's saying, I know exactly what it's going to take for me to go to the cross to die. I know exactly what it's going to take for you to be born again, and I'm willing to do it. That's how it makes total sense when Jesus in John 16 says this, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because of her time, that her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because her joy that a child is born, because of her joy that a child is born into the world, so with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away. Jesus is saying, a mother has joy at the end of the whole process because of the new life that is born. And Jesus is saying that's exactly what's true of me. You know, he's saying, I'm going to the cross because of a joy of having you and your new life. And that is our motivation to, to be able to pray big prayers and say, God, you need I need you desperately. It's not me and 95% you, you're 100% saving me, and I 100% need you to give me new life through the pain and death of your son. So my encouragement to you is to be like Nicodemus, to be a drastically changed person. The end of of the gospel in John 19, we see that Nicodemus is present later in the gospel asking for the body of Jesus and looking to uh, prepare his body for burial, so, partially, what we know is this ruling elite class person, the gospel's winding down, or the, the life of Jesus and the narrative there is winding down by showing this elite, notable person giving up all of that status to be present at Jesus' birth and to tend to that body with his other friend, who's also sort of in that same elite class. So, we don't know everything about what happened to Nicodemus after this incident in John 3, but we know that he's present later saying, In a sense, I'll give up all of that to be with Jesus. And we have to do that same thing if we want to respond to the call to be born again. Let's pray.